Well, I confess to you this morning that I feel like a sermon squirrel this summer, but you can blame it on our summer super study because ever since we've started working our way through Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation, I've left here every Wednesday night with some thought pinballing around in my head. And in each of the letters that we've been studying, Christ addressed significant subjects, which I think are extremely relevant to our lives personally and also the life of our church corporately. And it just seems that they're worthy of further study and deeper consideration. And one of those subjects that has been coming up almost weekly and was directly addressed in Christ's letter to the church in Sardis that we looked at this past Wednesday is the subject of revival. And all of the churches, with the exception of Philadelphia, were experiencing signs of decline or decay or deadness Um, And they desperately needed to be revived. The church in Ephesus was the cold church, right? They had let their love for Christ grow cold. Uh, The church in Sardis was, uh, excuse me, the the church in Smyrna was, you could call that the crushed church. They were uh, suffering and and, and experiencing tribulation and needed to be revived. Um, The church in Pergamum was the compromised church. The church in Thyatira was the corrupt church. Uh, The church in Sardis that we looked at this last week was the comatose church. Uh, It actually said that that they they had a reputation of being alive, but they were what? Dead. And we're going to see in a couple weeks the church in Laodicea, which you could call the cool church. Not like the, hey, I'm cool, but they weren't hot or they weren't cold. They were lukewarm, right? Um, What is sad and shocking to me is that these churches existed only about 40 years or so after Jesus had ascended back to heaven and had established the church at Pentecost. And so it didn't take long for the church, just four decades, to backslide, which is a sobering reminder of how all of us are are not just prone to wander, but we're prompt to wander. And how easily and how quickly our love for him can grow cold and our passion for him can dwindle and and die out. Well, thankfully, throughout the history of the church, God, by the power of his spirit through his word, has been faithful and merciful to revive and reawaken his people. Roger Ellsworth, in a helpful book about revival called Come Down, Lord, said this, quote, the history of the church is the history of revival in which God has demonstrated again and again his willingness to revive his people. I'm sure you're aware that this past spring, a revival of sorts occurred at Asbury University in Kentucky when a number of students lingered after a chapel service and began praying and singing and playing instruments and crying and hugging one another. And and this went on for over two weeks until the leadership of the university had to shut that down when massive crowds overwhelmed the infrastructure of the small town uh, where this Christian college is located. But the event went viral on social media. And so Christians from all across our country and even all around the world flocked to the college to experience firsthand what God was allegedly doing. And many were and and still are skeptical of what happened at Asbury since it's part of 
the Wesleyan or holiness tradition, which if you know anything about that theological um, perspective, is it, it, there's an emphasis there of transformational encounters with the Holy Spirit, which is perhaps why the university has had a number of revivals in their history, the most famous occurring in 1970. But it's interesting that the lightning of revival has struck multiple times in the same location. What's up with that? I'm not saying it's not a genuine move of the Lord, it's just a question. And I think perhaps this is just the latest example of how the concept of revival is often misunderstood and misapplied by well-meaning people. Some of you, I know, come from a traditional Baptist background, and perhaps revivals for you, um, in your mind, are equated with an annual church event where the guest evangelist comes into town and he preaches a series of fiery messages in a big old tent out on the back property, right? Kind of an evangelistic rally. If you come from a a Pentecostal or charismatic background, maybe a revival is, in your mind, associated with large gatherings of people who supposedly experience supernatural signs and wonders and Things like speaking in tongues and getting slain in the spirit and falling on the ground and shaking and and, and laughing hysterically and barking and crawling around like dogs. I'm not making this stuff up. In all manner of wackiness, that's the old Holy Ghost revival, right? And these so-called outpourings of the spirit marked by all sorts of weird and ecstatic emotional uh, physical phenomenon have been clearly exposed as counterfeit revivals, which tragically leave people in a far worse state than they were when it all started. I say all that because there's just lots of baggage that comes with the subject of revival, and I think that's why conservative evangelical churches like ours don't often talk about it, but the Bible talks about it a lot. In fact, revival is a major theme in both the Old and New Testaments. From the the numerous kings of Israel and Judah to the seven churches of Revelation, God confronted the issue of spiritual backsliding and provided spiritual awakening. And the scriptures are very clear that God's people are perpetually in need of revival. Why? Because we drift, we disobey, we dry up, we become downcast or, or despondent. And so, because we perpetually need revival, it's crucial for us to understand what revival is so we can experience it personally and and corporately. And so rather than than tackling such a huge subject that would end up in 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 another sermon series of its own, I thought this morning it would suffice just to look at one example in Scripture of a Bible-based, Scripture-produced revival So we can learn what actually sparks and sustains real revival and what are the results or evidences of a real revival. So take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, the book of Nehemiah, as you probably know, uh, is the memoirs, the personal memoirs of the man that God called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem which had been destroyed by the Babylonian invasion. And so in the first seven chapters, 
of Nehemiah, Nehemiah detailed how he led the Jewish exiles to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in a remarkable 52 days. But even though the walls had been finished, Nehemiah's work had just begun because there's still um, six more chapters to go. See, Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem not just to reconstruct the walls, but to aid in the spiritual renewal of God's people. The nation of Judah had almost been completely destroyed by the Babylonians, and they were demoralized as a result of, of, of subsequent 70 years of exile in Babylon. And those who had been allowed to return to their homeland now were under great distress as a result of the opposition they were facing from the surrounding countries who didn't want them to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so not only did they lack morale, but they also lacked morals. The moral and and spiritual condition of the people was deplorable at this time because during the exile, compromise had seeped into the Jewish society and the people had drifted away from God and his law. And so, consequently, the Jews lacked the purity and the vibrancy that they once enjoyed as God's people. And so now that the temple had been rebuilt under the direction of Ezra the priest, and now the walls had been rebuilt under Nehemiah's direction, the nation was ready to be reconsecrated in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so in the remaining chapters here, Eight and following, Nehemiah described the steps he took to reconsecrate the nation. And then the first step was to repopulate the capital city of Jerusalem. And although the repopulation didn't actually take place until chapter 11, when Nehemiah asked a tenth of the population of Judah to come live in Jerusalem, in chapter 7, Nehemiah began making the necessary preparations for this new community. And so we see in chapter 7, how he made some key appointments, he took an official census, and he even received donations for the ongoing work of the Lord. So chapter 7 really serves as a transition between the reconstruction of the walls, verses 1 through 6, and the reconsecration of the people, verses or chapters 8 through 13. But look at the last phrase of the last verse of chapter 7, verse 73. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. So in the providence of God, less than a week after finishing the walls, it was the time of year when the entire nation was called to celebrate several feasts, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths with the Day of Atonement sandwiched in between. And so this was the most sacred month of the year for Jews. And now while revival is not something you can schedule, you can't put it on a calendar and say, hey, we're going to have a revival on whatever, December 13th, um, this was a perfect time for revival. I mean, the people were ripe for revival. And also... While revivals are miraculous, they are mysterious, um, they cannot be manufactured, they're unpredictable, they're unexplainable. At the same time, there are certain conditions that God has clearly laid out if a revival is going to occur. God is sovereign 
over when and how a revival takes place, but God's sovereignty never negates man's responsibility. And so what we see here in in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 is a description of the revival that broke out among the Jewish exiles. And each of these three chapters highlights a different element that played a role in the spiritual awakening or reawakening experienced by the nation of Israel. And so we could look at these three chapters and, and really characterize them as three steps to spiritual revival. Three steps to spiritual revival. In other words, what is involved in being personally revived or reawakened or being corporately revived and reawakened? Well, first of all, in chapter 8, we see that it begins by being convicted by God's word. And chapter 8 is all about preaching. And then chapter 9, we see that the result of being convicted by God's word is confessing sin. And chapter 9 is all about prayer. And then chapter 10, we see that not only do we need to be convicted by God's word and confess our sin, we need to make a commitment to change. And chapter 10 is really all about repentance. And so let's look at these three uh, steps to spiritual revival this morning. First of all, a conviction by God's word. Notice the first six verses of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who, would, who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for, this, for the purpose, and beside him stood, and I'm not going to steal you or rob the joy of trying to pronounce those names from you. So uh, you can figure those out as you look through those. But there were uh, six men on his right hand and seven men on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So in light of the significance of this celebratory month in the life of the nation of Judah, Nehemiah gathered the people together for a Bible conference, and Ezra was the guest preacher. Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah. He had been ministering there in Jerusalem for 14 years before Nehemiah ever arrived. And ever since Ezra arrived with Zerubbabel, Ezra had been faithfully teaching the Jewish people God's law. In fact, I love how Ezra is described in Ezra chapter 7, verse 9. It says, The good hand of his God was upon him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. But Ezra's teaching ministry had been interrupted by this two-month building program. But as soon as the people were done rebuilding the walls, they clamored to hear from, from Ezra again. 
And so it says all the people gathered as one man at the square. It's estimated that there was a crowd of about 42,000 people gathered together for this historic event. And the atmosphere was electric. And I love what it says there in verse 1. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book. Steve Lawson has a message on this text, and that's what he titled his sermon, Bring the Book. And so after spending almost two long, hard months rebuilding the walls, the people wanted to be refreshed by the word of God, and so they cried out to Ezra to preach to them. And so to Ezra, that was like saying, sick him to a mad dog, right? And so he got up and he read from early morning until midday, from the time the sun came up until noontime. We're talking about six hours for seven days straight. These people were willing to devote half a day for an entire week to hearing the word of God read and taught, and they remained attentive the entire time. And notice it says that they, they built this, this, this huge podium, this high and lofty stage, custom built for this occasion. And it was large enough for not only Ezra to stand up there, but he, had, he was flanked by, by these 13 other guys. The picture I get in my mind when I think of this scene is whenever we watch the inauguration of the president every four years, they build this massive stage out in front of the Capitol building, right? And uh, it's like he's towering over uh, the, 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 the people. And notice that when he began reading the word of God, what did they do? They all stood up. They rose to their feet in honor of God's word. But notice verses seven and eight. Again, another list of Levites that I will leave to you to figure out how to pronounce. But notice it says they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they understood the reading. The people were probably speaking Aramaic by this time, and they may have not been as familiar with Hebrew, and so, of course, they were translating this perhaps from Hebrew to Aramaic, but more importantly, they were interpreting it so people could understand what it meant and how it applied to their lives. One of my favorite things about this story is I think this chapter is one of the best examples of the, in the entire Bible of what we mean by expository preaching. Um, it's, it, another word for exposition is simply explanation. And, and, and this is where we really come to the, a biblical basis for expository preaching. The other example would be Jesus in, in uh, Luke chapter 24, when he was on the Emmaus Road. You may remember this, and he was walking with the disciples, and it says in verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And then verse 32, after he uh, had revealed himself and opened their eyes to recognize him, he vanished. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And then later in verse 45, it says, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's my job 
as an expositor, as a preacher, as a Bible teacher to help you understand what the Bible says, what it means, and how it applies to your life. In fact, the word understand here uh, is used six times in this chapter. And so these days, when it comes to understanding and applying God's word, we need to realize we are living in a, in a, in a you know, many centuries after the Bible was written in an entirely different culture than the Bible was written in. We speak an entirely different language, which means that preachers today need to do a whole lot of explaining. You may remember I've likened my role as, a, as an expositor, as a tour guide, right? My job is to kind of lead you back in time to a particular text when a, when a particular text was written and, 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 and uh, explained the historical and the cultural and geographical context of that text and what it literally meant to those original hearers and then bring you back with some practical truth and, or a principle that you can apply to your life today. Some preachers don't even bring you back. It's just like they go right from here to there and, and you never learn the context and what it meant to the original hearers. Other preachers, they do get into the, all the details and they bring you back in time, but they never bring you back home <laughs> with something tangible, something practical that you can, you can put into practice in your life. You see the balance here in, this, in, this, in these first eight verses of uh, or between the public exposition of the word in a large assembly, that's what Ezra was doing, and then the personal application of the word in small groups. That's why we give you that sermon sheet, by the way, and why we encourage you to go to a grow, grow, grow group, and we encourage grow groups to do sermon application. Um, because it helps not just to hear the sermon in a large group, but also to discuss it in a small group where it can become more, even more understandable, even more applicable. And that's what Ezra and the Levites were doing here. They were making God's word understandable and applicable so the people could receive it and respond to it. One commentator described it this way. He said, Ezra and his helpers were the first in a long line of expository preachers who explained the Bible. He said, this method of preaching has been blessed by God down through the centuries and continues to be an effective instrument for bringing Christians to spiritual maturity. Topical and textual preaching may often be inspiring and helpful, but the spiritual benefits do not compare with those resulting from a preaching ministry like Ezra's. Blessed indeed are the believers who are privileged to sit under expository preaching of the scriptures. I trust you appreciate that comment. Notice verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. So the people took the message very seriously. 
fact, they were overwhelmed with grief over their failure to obey God's word. And yet God had intended this to be a time of rejoicing, not mourning. This, this month was supposed to be a joyful season. And so Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites had to calm the people down and, and redirect them and tell them, hey, stop crying. This is a, you know, go, go, ha- go rejoice. Go celebrate. And then notice verse 13. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So this seems like some kind of special Bible study that was held for the leaders who had the responsibility of teaching others. And Ezra called them all together and gave them some special insight uh, into the law and, and gave them some, maybe some training in how to teach it to the people. Verse 14, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in their courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, in other words, booths, booths everywhere, right? The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So, The people discovered, as they were studying God's word, that God had commanded them to to celebrate or um, have this feast of booze or tabernacles. And the timing was perfect, by the way, because they had two weeks to prepare, so they, they, they had everybody out go out and gather the materials and build their booze, which was really just intended uh, for, by God, to get the people to live in their little shacks or little booths for uh, a number of days so they, they could recall the days when they wandered in the wilderness. God didn't want them to forget that and also to foreshadow the time when Israel would dwell securely in the promised land. So he had in, in, inaugurated this back uh, during the wilderness wandering. And so what do we see here? We see a group of people honoring God by reverently listening to his word with a full commitment to obey whatever they see in the word. And if God says it, we're going to do it. And so I think the basic principle taught in this chapter is simply this. The consecration of God's people is based on the exposition of God's word. Bruce Milne, in a helpful little theology book he wrote called Know the Truth said this, nothing is more calculated to bring renewal of life, vigor and faith of the church in any generation, i.e. revival, than the unleashing of God's everlasting word in the midst of his people through the ministry of expository preachers anointed by his Holy Spirit. And the truth of that statement is verified by the revival that took place here 
in chapter 8 as a result of the exposition of Scripture. Listen, every revival in the history of God's people has been sparked and sustained by the exposition of God's Word. That was my issue with the Asbury thing. Where is the proclamation of God's Word? Where is the preaching of God's Word? Donald Whitney, in his... Uh, book Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church said this throughout church history, all the greatest movements of God in saving people and strengthening his church have been built upon great God anointed preaching. The colossal transformation of the church that occurred during, uh, through the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, was a work of God upon souls through preaching. When the first great awakening blazed through England and the American colonies, it began burning. From and was sustained by the fiery pulpits of men such as Whitfield, Wesley, and Edwards. The second great awakening, when the wind of God blew across America for several decades in the early 1800s, was also fundamentally the blessing of God upon preaching. In almost every case where large numbers of people have been converted in a concentrated period, it has been as a result of the message preached. When the fire of God falls, the flashpoint is in the pulpit. So this is where revival starts. It starts by being convicted by God's work. Being convicted by God's work. Which leads to the second step, which is confession of sin, which we see in verse 9. And as a result of Ezra's reading and explaining God's law, the people were overwhelmed with guilt because they realized how far short they had fallen from the standard that God had set forth in his word, and they began to mourn, they began to weep, and as I mentioned earlier, Nehemiah and Ezra had, had, had originally told them to stop mourning, since the Feast of Tabernacles was supposed to be a joyful occasion, but now several days later, after the feast, um, they gathered together appropriately for a time of national confession. Look at verse 1. Now on this 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and, they, and worshiped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood, and here's our list of Levites again, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So the sorrow, all the sorrow and all the grief that had bottled, they, they had bottled up inside of them during the feast now gushed out on this day of fasting and mourning for their sins. And, and notice they separated themselves from the foreigners. Foreigners could celebrate the Jewish feast, but this was an occasion reserved for Jews only. This was an opportunity for the nation of Israel to deal with their sin before God. And so they read from the scriptures for three hours, which led to three more hours of confessing their sin and worshiping God. And again, it was the exposition of God's word that brought about the conviction of sin and people started confessing their sins to God. And the Levites proceeded to lead the people in a great prayer of confession Verse 5, then the Levites, again listed there, said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. 
You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. And so they launch into one of the greatest confessions recorded anywhere in the Bible. In fact, I think if I understood this correctly, this is the longest prayer in the Bible. It goes on for a couple pages in your Bible probably, like it does mine. But starting there in verse 7, this prayer is really a succinct summary of the history of God's relationship with Israel from Genesis up until Ezra and Nehemiah. And they cover the creation and the call of Abraham and the deliverance from Egypt and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the provision in the wilderness and the conquest of Canaan, the error of the judges, the prophets, the captivity. We don't have time to read all of this, but the overriding theme of this prayer is God's great mercy in faithfully forgiving the nation for multiple iniquities and, and for being gracious to not forsake them. I think the heart of the prayer is verse 17. Notice what it says. They refused to listen, talking about the Jews, and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. And this prayer of confession ends with a plea for mercy and and an appeal for deliverance from the consequences of captivity in verses 32 through 37. And again, we don't have time to read this this morning, but I would encourage you maybe later today or this week, you, you read through this beautiful and powerful example of what it looks like to humbly confess your sin and appeal to the forgiving nature of God to revive you and to restore you. And I think we, what we can learn from this chapter is that the underlying requirement for revival is humility. Humility, namely a broken and contrite heart which manifests itself primarily through confession of sin and dependence on God in prayer. Remember what, how God responded to Solomon's request um, when he dedicated the temple and said, Lord, would you, would, man, if we mess up and if we stray away, would you, if people come here and we pray, uh, would you restore us? And this is what God said in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be upon will be open in my ears, attentive to the prayer offered in this place. In other words, yes, Solomon, I will do that. Isaiah 57, 15, God says, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. And so revival is always marked by this profound awareness of sin and a genuineness, a genuine humble brokenness over it. You think about the revival in Nineveh, which some Bible scholars say was the greatest revival in the history of mankind. This totally pagan nation gets confronted by this whitewashed prophet that got spit out of a whale. And they were so convicted from the king to the cows, they were all covered in sackcloth. They, they made everybody wear sackcloth. Even they put it on their dog, they put it on their cat, they put it on everything, right? They, they were so broken over their sin. Some of you that maybe study church history, like to study church history, you've heard of the Welsh revivals and how God did a, an amazing work there in, um, in, in, in Britain and the, the coal miners, the hardened coal miners would, would come out of the, the coal mines to hear the preaching of God's word and they would stand there and their te- tears would just stream down their blackened faces. And it's recorded that the mules that they used to help them mine the coal got confused because they stopped swearing at them. It was one of the marks of revival. They, they stopped cussing. And the mules didn't know what to do because they had only learned their, their commands through swearing. I think the point is this, that in order for us to experience God's great mercy and grace personally in our lives and corporately as a church, we must devote ourselves to humble prayer. Every Great revival in church history was initiated and sustained by either one person or a group of people coming together to cry out to God to rend the heavens and to send revival. R.A. Torrey, who was an evangelist back in the early 1900s, this was his recipe for revival. He said, first, let let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. Second, let them bind themselves together in a prayer group to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at God's disposal to use as he sees fit. This is sure to bring revival to any church or any community. I have given this prescription around the world and in no instant has it ever failed and it cannot fail. And so we need to be convicted by God's word. We need to confess our sin, and then thirdly, we need to make a commitment to change. We need to make a commitment to change. And that's chapter 10. And really, the last verse of chapter 9 is the bridge that gets us to chapter 10. Notice this is now because of all this, this is verse 38, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders and our Levites and our priests. So they acknowledged, they they had just finished acknowledging that the problem was with them, not with the Lord, and now they were truly committed to change. And they demonstrated that commitment to change by making a public promise to God that they would obey the scriptures. 
And this public promise was in the form of a written agreement, a contract, if you will, with God. And by signing this document, they were covenanting with God to keep his law from that point on. And again, I think this is a good reminder to us that that listening to God's word is a good thing. Confessing sin is a good thing. But neither of those are substitutes for obedience. Admitting you're wrong is a good first step to getting right with God, but, but it has to be followed by doing what is right. Remember Samuel and his, the way he confronted Saul when he had been commanded to kill all the Amalekites, everything, every living thing. And Samuel shows up and he goes, hey, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? And what's, uh, what's Agag doing over there, the king of the Amalekites? Thought I told you to wipe everything out. He says, oh, well, we, we, we spared some of the sheep so that we could offer them as a sacrifice to thank the Lord for, for the victory. And Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and in, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, God would have much rather had you just obey him. So here these people were putting their commitment in writing, which proved they really meant business, and especially in light of the fact that they included a specific list of practical ways that they were committed to change. And after the, the, the opening verses here, verses 1 through 27, which is just a list of the signatories, which, by the way, notice the first name on the document was Nehemiah, right? Setting the example for the rest to follow by being the first one to sign his name. But after the list of signatories, all the, the Levites and the priests and the leaders, um, in the remaining verses in this chapter, there are three fruits or evidences of genuine revival. Notice, number one, a commitment to submit to God's word. A commitment to submit to God's word. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's laws, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinance and his statutes. So the entire population here was agreeing to observe the commandments that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai. And they actually called down a curse on themselves if they failed to follow through on their commitment. So they wanted to commit to submit to God's word. Number two, they, they, they made a commitment to separate from the world. Look at verse 30. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And as for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. You know that two of the ways that God had commanded his people to remain set apart from the surrounding pagan nations was prohibiting mixed marriages and practicing the Sabbath. And which, by the way, we know that 
the Jews had violated both of those commands. So now they were recommitting, rededicating that, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to allow our daughters and our sons to intermarry with, with people from foreign nations. And we're also going to keep the Sabbath. We're not going to do business on the Lord's Day. And, 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 and we're also going to honor the seventh year and we're not going to plant crops. That's why they ended up in captivity for 70 years, to make up for all the years, right, that they had not rested their fields and followed the command of the Lord. And so they were committed to submit to God's word. They were committed to separate from the world. And lastly, they were committed to support God's work. And verses 32 through 39 is simply their commitment to pay the mandatory temple tithes and offerings to maintain the house of the Lord. In other words, we're, we're, we're committing to, to, to give to the work of the Lord to maintain the temple, to buy the food and the sacrifices and the festivals and other duties and support the Levites. Notice the very last phrase of verse 39, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. So they, that, they were expressing their renewed commitment to the religious life of the nation, that, that their life would now revolve around the things of God. And so God had used Nehemiah and Ezra to, to lead these people to a place where spiritual things took the highest priority in their life. And so I think where there's true revival, you're going to see these three things. You're going to see people wanting to submit to God's word, wanting to separate themselves from the world, and wanting to support God's work. This renewed commitment here in chapter 10 we see as a mark of genuine revival. I read somewhere that back in 1742, Jonathan Edwards, who we know was part of the, the Second Great Awakening uh, through his ministry there in Northampton, Massachusetts, and he was praying for revival, he was preaching for revival, and apparently after one service or one uh, message that he preached on a Sunday morning, he invited his congregation to enter a covenant with him. That everyone in the church, 15 years and up, made promises to avoid particular sins, to, to love their neighbors, to devote their lives to the, to the work of the Lord and to, to walk uprightly before the, before the Lord. Perhaps there's some commitment that you have been needing to make, you've been wanting to make. I would encourage you to Put it in writing. Sign it. Pray about it. Make yourself accountable to someone because that's when true change will start to happen. The biblical word for change is repentance. And that's what we see here in chapter 10. And I love how Peter said it in one of his first sermons in the book of Acts, Acts 3.18, he said, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer this morning that if there is anyone here in need of revival, 
Lord, that they would be convicted by the preaching of your word today. They would repent of their sin. They would recommit their lives to you. And that you would send times of refreshing upon their life. We pray this for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.